0: Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Achieving Lead-Free School Water in New Jersey. This program was recorded Tuesday, February 26, 2019, at the Hilton Gardens Hotel in Hamilton, New Jersey. Hundreds of New Jersey schools, including those in Newark, have tested positive for lead in their students' drinking water, raising urgent questions about how to pay for upgrades that will make water permanently safe. Now, state officials have $100 million to spend on improving drinking water infrastructure in schools as part of the $500 million in bond funding under the Securing Our Children's Future Act approved by voters in November 2018. To spend the money most effectively, officials are considering measures such as replacing lead service lines and water fountains, installing filters or other technology, concentrating the funding in school districts that are most affected by lead in water infrastructure or spreading the spending evenly across the state. And now let's go to the lectern where Lee Keough, the Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight will introduce today's program.
1: My name is Lee Keough and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight Um, and welcome to the School Water Infrastructure uh, Roundtable. We have a very packed agenda today uh, we've got uh, we, we're going to start off with um, a speaker Chris Sturm I'll introduce her later but she um, is from New Jersey future uh, we have uh, a speaker from the Chicago Public school system who just went through this whole remediation process and he's going to give you an idea what that meant what that meant and and how they did it. And then we have a panel of experts. Um, I think we're going to have Senator Greenstein who was involved in uh, creating this, or find, finding the hundred million dollars that we are now going to be charged with spending um, to, to do remediation on the, uh, on the uh, school water infrastructure to eliminate the... Le- wet, uh, to eliminate the lead Um, but we also have some union contractors, uh, experts in in water and um, so forth. Uh, Let me just tell you a little bit about New Jersey Spotlight. I don't know if you read it, I hope you do. We're a um, website that focuses on public policy and uh, we do a lot of uh, writing about the environment and energy and schools and education and so, so on and so forth. We also have healthcare and f- budget finance of uh, the state. So if you don't know of it, please read it um, because we, I think we do a pretty good job if I do say so myself. And uh, we've been around for 10 years now which is unbelievable to me. We're a nonprofit. Uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, and I think that we do a lot of these Um, On all of those topics, we do roundtables, and we, I think this is about our 75th in the 10 years, which is a lot. This year, we have a very ambitious schedule. We're doing about, I don't know, 12 of them or something like that, and on every one of these topics. So um, please watch at NJ Spotlight, and we promote all of them, and uh, you might want to go to another one. Um, uh, Just a couple of housekeeping things. We have... uh, these are on your table. They're cards. After the after the we speak to the um, the speakers on the round table. I don't know if we're going to have time for the um, Will what. Will the whole collective? All right. Well, no, I know that, but I was wondering if we're going to be taking questions of Rob. I don't know. Um, Yes. Okay. So all of our speakers, you can take you can take questions up, but you have to write them on these on these cards. We'll be collecting them. Steve and I will be collecting them. Um, the staff will be collecting them and bringing up to our moderator, who um, will decide which questions to ask. It's uh, we found that's the best most he can prioritize and get rid of the double questions and so on and so forth. We also you'll find a survey. Please uh, fill it out before you we leave. We, um, it really helps us in, the, in just figuring out what to do next time and uh, what you thought of this, this roundtable and whether we can do better. So, All right, well, thank you. I want to, uh, the first speaker we have is Chris Sturm. She is, uh, I've known Chris for a long time, but I have her. She's managing director of po- um, policy and water at New Jersey Future. She, um, New-, New Jersey Future is uh, very instrumental in New Jersey Waterworks, if you know that, and uh, it's called Waterworks, right? And um, yes, Jersey, New Jersey Waterworks, and uh, they were very busy with creating, getting this funding, and we have a hundred million dollars. And um, she and others are going to talk about. Uh, how we're gonna prioritize that spending. So, thank you very much and I'll be back later.
2: Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee, and good morning everybody. Um, It's great to see a lot of friends in the room. Um, Just to get a sense of who's here, um, how many folks are here representing school districts or associated with school districts? Raise your hands. Okay, how about water professionals in the public or private sector? All right, how about folks working um, at the local government level? Anybody, local government? Okay, and how about state government? Anyone here from the state of New Jersey? Okay, we have a few people here, and which departments are you all from? Okay. And how about you? Schools Development Authority, terrific, great. Well, welcome everybody. Um, I think we're all here today for two reasons. One is that we care about children's health and how it's imperiled by lead in drinking water. Um, As we all know, there's no safe level of lead in the human body. Lead inhibits healthy brain development and it can lead to learning disorders and behavior problems. Um, The only way to know how much lead poisoning is happening is to test blood in children. Children are essentially lead detectors. Um, We know that there are children across New Jersey with elevated blood lead levels, but they are especially concentrated in our cities. Um, In 2015, there were 13 New Jersey cities with a greater proportion of children with elevated blood lead levels than in Flint, Michigan. So it's a problem across the state. Um, Lead enters the body from many pathways. Uh, Paint is a significant source, water, toys, dust. When it comes to water, um, lead in water is an infrastructure problem. There's essentially no lead in our our source water. Water leaves the treatment plant. Uh, We have somebody here from the Department of Environmental Protection. Good morning. Lead leaves the treatment plant uh, clean, but then leeches, lead leaches into the water from pipes, old pipes, and interior plumbing fixtures and fittings. So a lot of the problem happens either in the building or immediately adjacent to it. For the vo- most vulnerable populations, pregnant women, infants, and young children, exposure to lead in drinking water happens at home, it happens in childcare centers, and of course it happens in schools. Um, which is why we're here today. Um, it's a complicated problem, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that soon. Um, I'm part of a task force that's looking at lead and drinking water comprehensively. Um, it's c- convened by Jersey Water Works, and it will be issuing recommendations this fall. So to learn more, I encourage you to go out to the table over there, and you can sign up for the newsletter to stay abreast. You can get a list of members. There's several here today, including Mike Fury and um, Kareem Deem and Amy Goldsmith, and um, we have representatives from the Department of Environmental Protection and other state agencies. Um, In fact, I see Joe Pergola here from Division of Children and Families. Anyone else I missed from the Lead and Drinking Water Task Force? Okay. So the other reason we're here today is to talk about this new opportunity. A hundred million dollars is a lot of money, and it's dedicated to building and retrofitting school district water infrastructure to improve water quality. And the big question is exactly how will this money be spent? Um, The Department of Education commissioner is charged with setting up the grant program in consultation with the Department of of Environmental Protection. Um, Before we talk about that, let's just talk a little bit more about how pervasive is lead in drinking water in schools in New Jersey. We've all heard anecdotes, um, like in Camden, kids have been drinking bottled water for over a decade. We know that in the city of Newark in 2016, about half of schools were found to have at least one outlet testing positive for lead, despite having a very well-established flushing program and filter program. And it's really great that Valerie Wilson is with us today, who's on the front lines of fixing that problem. When it comes to data, we have a partial story. In 2016, the Department of Education issued regulations that required every school district to test drinking water outlets and outlets used in food preparation for lead. Um, They were required to post results on their websites, and if positive incidences were found where there was more than 15 parts per billion of lead, to share that information with parents and to send it to the Department of Education, and also describe how they were taking those outlets out of commission. Um, New Jersey Future was excited about this. We thought we would get a statewide picture of the problem, but we learned in 2017 that the department didn't plan to compile the data or share it, so we issued public records requests and got um, information. Um, quickly from the Department of Education showing that 95 schools had uh, submitted results to the department. Um, They showed that over 300 school districts had at least one, an average of eight, um, outlets with lead. Um, These were scattered across the state in rural areas, suburban areas, in cities. Um, We also found that the data was incomplete. So we checked for 13 cities that had high blood lead levels in children and saw only one of those um, in what we received from the Department of Education. We then went to the district websites and found that indeed they did do the lead testing and posted the results, but we realized that the State Department didn't have a a complete database. Um, Nevertheless, we, we know that this is a pervasive problem. Um, Our report established a number of recommendations for ways that the department could better collect and analyze the data and use it to drive policy and spending decisions. And you can find a copy of that report on the table um, near the entrance. So um, before I conclude, I want to thank NJ Spotlight for convening this forum. Um, it's really great when we have such an important decision facing our state. How do we spend $100 million to have a conversation where we can hear from experts from um, out of state, from Chicago, as well as experts from within New Jersey? Um, thank you to the sponsors who make this possible. Thanks for the coffee. Um, and I'm you know, certainly looking forward to hearing from the speakers. New Jersey Future, where I work, um, promotes strong communities that have thriving economies, a healthy environment, and where everybody has equal access to opportunity. So for that reason, um, I encourage us all to think about this question of how do we best set up this state program from three perspectives. First is the how. You know, what are the best technologies for remediating lead in school drinking water? It's complicated. So what are the most reliable, the most innovative, and the most cost-effective ways to do that? The second question is the who. Who should this program be designed to serve? There's never enough money to fix everything. And so how should the $100 million be prioritized? And I would suggest that we take a careful look at the kids who are at the greatest risk of lead poisoning We're living in communities with elevated blood lead levels, which have the fewest resources to address the problem. And finally, uh, the question is what? What's the best program for a state program um, to address these concerns and to do so in a way that's fair and transparent? Um, We all know we need everybody in New Jersey, every child contributing to their communities, growing up and contributing to the state, and so um, I want to thank everybody for being here today and participating in this conversation and giving me a chance to weigh in. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Chris. That's a really valuable way to to set the stage for the the discussion that will ensue, and we do hope that um, uh, we can make a, make good use of the expertise that will arise from today's session. My name is Steve Shalit. I'm the director of business development for NJ Spotlight, and uh, I want to thank everybody for being here and for our um, all of our our participants who will give their expertise. It's it's greatly appreciated that you bring your time to this event. Um, I'd also like to thank our sponsors without whom these events would not be possible to bring these public policy um, issues to light and um, I'd like to acknowledge them uh, specifically. Firstly, uh, NJ Pipe Trades, which is um, uh, New Jersey is represented by nine local association, um, United Association locals, and uh, it's an extensive list. I'll give you the numbers. It's locals nine, twenty-four, two seventy-four, three twenty-two, four seventy-five, 669, 692, 696, and 855. That represents over 11,000 technicians uh, covering um, plumbers, pipe fitters, steam fitters, uh, sprinkler fitters, uh, HVACR, service technicians, metal tradesmen, and production and maintenance workers in the state. And that's a tremendous amount of the workforce that's going to ultimately doing the work that we discussed today. Nationally, the United Association represents approximately 343,000 such technicians, so it's a a significant, uh, talented workforce addressing these issues at that level. Um, The UA offers training, including apprenticeship, journeyman, and instructor programs, as well as numerous certification programs, and they help their signatory contractors find new opportunities while providing support and connections with their skilled, highly trained workforce. So thank you to New Jersey Pipe Trades. I'd like to thank also the NJEA and Healthy Schools Now as a partnership. The New Jersey Education Association represents 200,000 educators across New Jersey who are passionate advocates for students and public education. And Healthy Schools Now specifically is a diverse coalition of public education advocates, including parents, public educators, social justice proponents, faith leaders, and environmentalists who are dedicated to ensuring that every New Jersey public school provides a safe, healthy environment conducive to learning, teaching, and student success. The NJEA proudly partners with Healthy Schools now because both organizations believe that providing educational opportunities to students today sets a stage for a brighter future for all New Jersey residents. And lastly, I'd like to thank the UTCA, which is the Utility and Transportation Contractors Association, which has been a leading voice for improving the condition of infrastructure in New Jersey for more than 50 years. The UTCA represents approximately 1,000 member firms active in all aspects of civil construction, notably highways, utilities, marine construction, as well as site work, including remediation of brownfields and contaminated sites, and, uh, and their work will likely be involved in the remediation of the, the issues with the watering schools that we we'll are dis- discussing today. Um, with that, I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker. Um, we find that um, our discussions in New Jersey are greatly augmented when we include uh, points of view from outside of our state. So we're, uh, we're, we're very we're happy and uh, great, glad to receive with us uh, words from Robert Christlieb, who is with the Chicago Public Schools. They have faced uh, remediations around lead and infrastructure issues themselves, and we're going to learn a great deal about how they address those in the process. Um, so Rob is the Director of Operations for Facilities for the Chicago Public Schools. His 27 years of planning and design and project management and facilities and construction experience in both the private and public sector, in his, in his current position, he's responsible for the day-to-day operations of all the school facilities in the district, including engineering, custodial services, pest management, landscaping, snow removal, and anything that has to do with impacting the daily health and safety of their community of 527 campuses. Um, In his recent position as Senior Manager of Construction, he was responsible for implementing the $1 billion capital program as well as managing the Environmental Sciences Division of Chicago Public Schools as Facilities Department for the district. In these roles, he was responsible for the overall safety budget and schedule as well as the policy compliance of all capital projects managed by the district. And Over the last three three years, importantly, he has been responsible for the design, development and implementation of the water quality testing and mitigation program at Chicago Public Schools so with that I'd like to welcome um, Rob to, uh, to tell about their experience. Thank you.
4: Thank you Steve.
5: So is, is my mic on now okay good morning. Thank you for having me um, did we get it yeah, yeah. Um, First off, thank you very much for allowing me to come out here and share the story of Chicago Public Schools and our Water Quality and Mitigation Program. As Steve mentioned, it started three years ago. Um, Regretfully, it it blossomed very quickly, Um, but we'll get going through this. I've got a lot of stuff to share here. I'm more than willing to share and answer any questions you guys got, so I'm gonna skim through this real quick. Uh, CPS Water Quality Testing Overview. our top priority is the health and safety of our students. And anything we can do to help preserve that is a key for us. Um, in, in 2016, uh, I, in March of 2016, I was put in charge of the Environmental Services Division. And at that time, Flint had just happened. We decided that, hey, how do we go out and, you know, what do we know about our water? We hadn't tested water in our district uh, for 20 years. Um, So we decided to put together a little uh, pilot program, went out and tested 32 schools, spot checked across the district, did four or five random samples in a building, trying to see if we had any exposure. Um, And we did, (laughs) regretfully. Um, the, The key for us was understanding how to best program what we were going to do. Once we realized that we had one school that had seven or eight different fixtures, and regretfully, those seven or eight fixtures kept changing because the guy that was taking the samples kept reversing the nomenclature and the location of the fixtures. So we tested three times in a row, and each time we got different results from different locations, uh, that caused a panic um, for us. And with that, when we got those results, we ended up going from just randomly testing to going to 294 schools in 29 days with four days of preparation. Uh, I sucked up every water bottle in the Midwest in four days. Um, so our test methodology, and I think this is something that sets us apart from everyone else, is uh, the five sequential testing. Um, I think most of you are familiar with the first draw, second draw, um, procedure protocol that the uh, EPA recommends. When we were talking with water management, they recommended a five sequential test for us. And that allows us to do five 250 milliliter tests at each location. um, And it gives us a great profile not only of that fixture, how it, you know, from the start all the way back to the riser, but it also gives us a great profile of what's going on in the building as a whole. And that's very important when it comes to mitigation to understand is your problem. Localized? Is it in a riser or a, uh, a branch, or is it the whole school? So yeah, yeah, I'd say, you know that's the thing I like about the, the five sequential is that we, had, we went back and looked in some of our tests where we had positive results, I should add um, the, We didn't get a positive test until the third, fourth or fifth test. Um, and so that was key where we thought something would have been safe. Our testing methodology told us that there was something else going on there, so we were able to treat it. So our basic water sampling method is all sources unused, stagnant for 8 to 18 hours, which is not hard for us. Uh, five 250 milliliters sequential samples of cold water collected per pot- potable water source. A uh, potable water source for us is drinking fountains, kitchen sinks, um, nurses' stations, faculty lounges, anywhere somebody would consume water. We do not sample vanity sinks. We consider that a health hazard in and of itself in the bathrooms. Um, we did use outside sources to um, test. We didn't feel that people would trust us if we did the testing ourselves, regretfully. So we, have, we use outside sources to do our testing. Our, our 20, Well. Our 2016 round of testing, which we completed, uh, 294 schools were done in 29 days in uh, May and June of 2016. Then we had the summer off, and then we came back and tested the rest of our campuses. Um, And most of those were the high schools. So we did all the elementary schools and all the early childhood facilities first, and then we came back and did the older kids and the older buildings, or I should say, the high schools second in the fall. Of those 526 campuses, 37% had at least one sample above 15 parts per billion. 11,969 taps were tested, roughly 3% of those had at least one sample above 15 parts. And then we had a total of 58,985 samples analyzed and 1.37% of the samples were 15 parts per billion. So we generally had one or two fixtures in every school that was kind of giving us a problem. Some some schools as high as five or six or seven different locations, and those tended to be schools that were underutilized. Um, Cost. Our first round of testing, and I'll say this, I came in way under budget. Uh, We didn't know what was going to happen, so they budgeted me $5.7 million. We figured it was going to cost us a couple million dollars to do the testing, and then we were going to have a whole bunch of mitigation that we were going to need to do. Um, Luckily, it only ended up costing us about $2.1 million total for that first round. Uh, The average cost was about $35 per sample, or $150 to $175 per location to test with the five sequential, which is somewhat expensive. but it did give us a great profile, what's going on in the school. We now, in our our new round of testing, we've gotten that cost down to $22 per test or about $100 per location, so a significant savings. Just because we know where everything's at now and we have it it in a database, we can speed everything up in the field. And I think that's a key takeaway, is understanding what you have and making the sampling as quick as possible. Um, I think I'm getting an echo here. Total cost and mitigation of pilots, 429,000. So our worst case uh, scenario, and you'll see some pictures later on, is was Tanner Elementary School, which was the school that kept having the random sampling um, problems, and kept moving and all that stuff across the building. In that school, we had to in- actually end up creating a potable water system for the building. It's a 1960s, 70,000 square foot, a typical elementary school, and the plumbing was leaking like a sieve. Uh, When we got there, when we did the sampling, there must have been 25 or 30 leaks in the hot water system alone. Uh, The basement or the crawl space was steamy and hot. You pay extra for that. So we actually instantly went and replaced the hot water lines there, just because they were falling apart and we couldn't work. We then came in and started um, trying a process of going through and following our mitigation process and trying to track down replacing fixtures uh, working our way through, but we eventually had to take it all the way back <clears throat> to the main because we could not. We were getting such cross contamination from the older system. We had to take the copper line all the way back to the main and then we had to put a backflow preventer on it. We had to put filters on it. <clears throat> I should say, we put filters on it first because we were getting cross contamination and then we ended up putting a backflow preventer on it. Um, So that was an expensive one, but that was the first one, and we learned a lot from that. Um, Most of our costs, or I should say the small fixes, most of our problems were solved uh, with small fixes. Um, You know, uh, drinking fountain replacement, maybe five feet of line or something like that. We had a couple, all kinds of interesting stuff goes on on in our buildings. Uh, We had one school that fully occupied, um, completely used, but they had a, a a Rude Goldberg uh, use of piping. It's like the plumber used every section of pipe under six inches that he had left in his truck to create like five feet to, man- to run 12 inches. It was, it was a classic. Um, I gave him credit for being able to make it fit, but it also gave us a lot of fittings and fixtures that are galvanized. Um, the flushing pilots, uh, no cost fixes I should say, a lot of the stuff, even though I had money, People just went ahead and spent it against their own accounts uh, for the schools and you know the maintenance cost directly related to the schools. So we lost some of the tracking of our, our ability to track some of those costs, but we're estimating about uh, probably $40,000 in miscellaneous stuff. Um, and then our flushing pilots, which we started and I'll get into a little bit later, uh, 60% of the cost here was design, but Onahan was $50,000 and Orr was $94,000. Uh, the actual solutions in each of those cases cost about $25,000 and $30,000 for the schools. Uh, time and learning. Every time I look at a fixture, I learn something new. And I think the key is to understand that it's good to have a group of people in your organization that understands the mitigation process so that they can evaluate and work together to help solve problems, because every fixture is a unique problem. All right, some of our lessons learned. And we learn these very quickly. <clears throat> Inactive fixtures are a significantly higher risk uh, for high lead levels. Uh, we have a lot of fixtures that just do not uh, get any usage, whether it's down by the building engineer's office or it's on the third floor of an underutilized building where no one's going up there. Uh, that's the key, when the water's sitting. We learn this very quickly. Um, and I'll just tell a quick story real quick. We had one fixture in a in relatively new school, 10 years old, 2,000 kids, uh, old main building, 1910, and then a brand new building, 2006, and one fixture right outside the, uh, the main office at the main juncture of these two buildings. 2,000 kids go past it every day, tested positive. Uh, kind of high, too, it was like uh, 40 or 50 parts per billion. And I'm like, wait a second, I know this school. I've been there, I think I, 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 I might have drank from there. Um, and it's right there in the middle, and it didn't make any sense. So I called the building engineer up and I said, hey, what's, what's going on with this fixture? Why aren't the kids using it? This is right at the center of the school. It's not in some corner anyway. He's like, well, when they built the building, they hooked it up to hot water. And we're like, okay, um, is it still hooked up to hot water? <laughs> yeah. Can we change that? Sure. <laughs> "Fix the next morning. So kids are smart. I guess that's my point. Kids know that That's hot water, it's not good to drink, it's gonna sit there and stagnate. So that's kind of one of the things that I learned. Um, Lead can be anywhere. Uh, You know, 86% of our our above action fixtures were in our older schools is what you would expect, but 14% were in our newer schools. And you know, especially those schools in the early 90s where we're not quite sure where the material was coming from and whether it was compliant, Um, you know, we saw a lot of that. Now these averages aren't weighted. Um, But I did, in my mind, I saw a lot more from the newer schools than I thought I would. And I think it's important to say that CPS tests every school and every fixture. We don't cut a threshold off a 2,000-plus building. We test every school or every fixture in every school. Uh, Preventive maintenance flushing helped. This is something we installed after our first 294 schools. We realized that stagnation was not working, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, stagnation is a key contributor for us. Um, as Ms. Strom mentioned, water, we, get, we have one of the best water sources in the country. Lake, we're second best. Lake Superior, I think, is better. Uh, Lake Michigan is second best. But we have very clean water coming out of our Jardine water plant. Uh, Chicago Water Management produces two billion gallons of water a day. It's generally very clean coming into our buildings. My problem is the age of my buildings. They're 77 years old, average age. Plumbing is galvanized, it's a hodgepodge, um, and that's where we believe we're really picking up our, our lead infiltration. Uh, need to turn over the, over the building water system. This was something that water management pointed out to us very quickly. They're like, hey, if you, if you can turn the water over, you're not gonna have as many of these problems. Um, we also realize that when we, whenever we're working in a building and touching plumbing, we're being very disruptive to the water quality in that building. And so we're really working with our capital teams and our maintenance teams to make sure that whenever we touch a system, whenever we touch plumbing, we're flushing. We're making sure that we're removing any sediment. All right, now I'm gonna go through these remediation protocols pretty quick, but basically it's a four-step process for us. Um, The first thing is of course, identify. And once we've identified a fixture that's tested positive, we put it through a flushing protocol. And this was based upon our, hey, fixtures aren't being used, if we stimulate the usage, let's we'll see what happens. Uh, so we would you know, change the aerators or um, you know, do that remedial stuff. We then do it through a seven-day uh, flushing protocol, we called it, and it's basically a nine-day testing cycle, but we would uh, flush that fixture for 20 to 30 minutes a day uh, for seven days, and then we would give it a day of normal usage. Um, which no one can define normal usage because everybody asked me that question, and I can't quite, you know, it's like, well, I don't know, fixture gets used three or four minutes a day. Um, just making sure it's not staying stagnant. Uh, and then we retest. And if it tested fine, uh, below 15 parts per billion, then it would be recertified and put back into service. Um, if it didn't, then it would go to the next step where we would start looking, especially with the porcelain sinks or the, um, the You know, the porcelain sinks with the guts that can be replaced. We'd take the stops out, we'd um, pull everything out, replace that last foot and a half of equipment that goes into the uh, porcelain sink, porcelain drinking fountain, and then uh, retest again, do a seven day flush, and then retest again. Uh, And then, once, if it didn't pass at that stage, then we started looking at, you know, replacing the fixture itself. Uh, and potentially uh, going back into the line after it. And this is where the five sequential kind of gave us a good head start of what we needed to do uh, if something was gonna work for us. Uh Fixture replacement, sometimes easy, sometimes incredibly hard, especially in a 1920s building. You can kind of see here, this is a very typical installation of a building from the 1910s, 20s, 30s where plumbing was retrofitted and they threw a bunch of fixtures down in the basement and these things have survived. Um, I would say, honestly, if I had to guess, I'd say probably excluding the newer buildings, probably uh, only 10% of our fixtures have been been replaced since installation. So I have a lot of very pretty old porcelain sinks or drinking fountains that are, you know, 1960s colors, um, and they're original to the building. And we had a lot of original brass fittings as well, and those got switched out. Um, but the concerns, you know, when, when you're fixture replacing, it's not just the fixture most times, it's okay, how do I, how do I get this back? Because in the picture here that you see, this school had uh, problems down in the basement, in the cafeteria space, and then had problems up on the first floor, so we ended up going back and replacing the plumbing line back to the main, and then tapping up and tapping over and putting in new fixtures. Gets pretty expensive. Um, environmental cost, a lot of asbestos in our buildings as everybody, I'm sure you guys have too. Uh, and of course, lead paint. So those can be very uh, time consuming projects. You have to get a lot of people involved. Uh, but our team got pretty used to what we were doing, so we were able to move fairly quickly. But still, you need an architect. You Okay, how am I gonna tie all this stuff back in? I don't wanna do this stuff myself. I want somebody to help me design it. Um, fixture replacement, and then we go to major repairs and system replacement. Uh, these pictures are from Tanner Elementary. That was the school that we, our first test came out bad. Um, there's a ripple effect. You know, First, it's ADA. You know, As you can see from these locations, they're not ADA. They're the same height, so we had to adjust that. The glazed block is lead-based, is lead so we came in from the back. Um, and we were able to get, um, get to the pipes and get to the asbestos on the pipes and then replace the pipes and the drinking fountains from the back. But again, this ended up costing us over $165,000 by the time we were done. Uh, full system replacement, we're probably never going to do that. Um, I, I've estimated the cost, and we've talked about it as, you know, for the district to replace all of our galvanized piping is probably one and a half to two billion dollars. Um, it would be incredibly disruptive. Uh, I would love to do it. I think it's something that we should do, but when plumbing in these old buildings goes across the entire building and it goes through all these old walls, lead paint, asbestos, it really drives the cost up. And just getting to the pipes is the hard thing. Um, and then you can fix it. I mean, plumbers, plumbers are great. They can plumb anything I need. I just gotta get to it and make it safe for them to work. And that's really what's cost prohibitive for us. Um, Limited system replacement is a much more of an option for us, and that's what we ended up doing at Tanner. And this is a, this picture is an example of the wa- this is the water main. So we had this old water main coming into the building, and you can see down at the bottom there's a copper line that was the copper line we tied in to the main to supply all the drinking fountains in the building, all 14 of them. And what we were getting is backflow from the old system and the main right there where it was mixing and it was coming into the system. Now it wasn't testing positive above 15 parts per billion at the drinking fountains, but it was testing positive at um, blowdown spots that we'd put into the system. So we knew that you know at, at the first blowdown it was 20 parts per billion and then by the last blowdown it was down to like five or six, but we knew we were contaminating the system and we didn't want that. So then we came back and installed the filters, which you see in picture two, which I don't like to do, and I'll talk about that. You know, the, that, those current canisters alone are $300. Um, and that made the system safe and allowed everybody to drink, but it still we still had the problem where water was backflowing into the system and we wanted to eliminate the filters. So then we came back in and basically cut all the main out, as you can see in picture number three, put in a backflow preventer, put in two backflow preventers, and isolated basically, so once the water main comes in, and splits, it can't come back into the system, and can't cross-contaminate between the potable and the non-potable system. That was kind of fun to figure out. Um, Real quickly, on our 2016 round of testing, uh, basically we were able to mitigate 79% of our fixtures by flushing, and that that was using the seven-day flushing protocol. Now, how long will that hold? I'm not sure. But I think it, it, it kind of pointed us in a direction that hey, you know, if these if these fixtures are being used, we shouldn't have a problem. Uh, minor repairs, 13% of our fixtures were mitigated that way, and then minor repairs, just basically fixing the replacing the fixture, then uh, 10%, and then we had basically 1% of our Tanner was the only one where we really had to do a <clears throat> a well, what do you call it? Uh, a potable water system. Filters. So, of course, once all this started happening, we, we, we started talking about, well, what are we gonna do to solve the problem in the long term? Um, and filters were a big discussion for us. Um, and for CPS, and I say this just for CPS because we're, we're us, we're a unique organization, we're very large, Our largest landowner in Cook County, uh, one of the largest employers, uh, 60 million square feet of space, Uh, significant operational concerns about filters. One, the cost of operating and and maintaining them. They're $79 a piece for us. Uh, That multiplied by, say, 10,000, and all of a sudden you've got a significant line item in your budget every year for replacing fixtures. And regretfully, I don't think that line item would be used up, and that's the problem. Preventative maintenance. Most don't have indicators. As a matter of fact, I just found three fixtures uh, uh, right before Christmas with filters on them dating from 2014, 2015, and one unknown, uh, but we didn't even know they were there. Um, it was an early lead-free fixture, and it only had a little indicator down at the bottom right-hand corner, so no one knew there were filters in there. Um, and we've gone through transitions in our in facilities management. We now outsource, so the people that were in those buildings for you know 10 years as a building engineer are no longer there. There's people rotating in and out. They don't know these little secrets about the building, so that gives us a lot of concern. They have a short usable life in high volume areas, especially um, high schools, where we've seen that you know in two to three weeks you basically used up that filter per the uh, recommendations and. You know, replacing a filter once or twice a year is one thing. Replacing it every month becomes a completely different ball game, <coughs> especially with our <coughs> limited budget. Um, and most importantly, we were concerned about exposure to heat. Only 60% of our buildings have uh, 60% of our buildings have AC in the classrooms. Uh, we use window shakers. Uh, five-year program we just completed where basically air, every classroom is air conditioned, uh, but not the hallways, the gyms, the cafeterias. 40% of our schools do have central air, but those schools that don't are mostly elementaries, and they're using the window shakers. We get extreme temperatures in the summers. I've been in a building where it gets up to a, you know 120 degrees or 110 degrees, and that building is just cooking all summer. And so we were concerned about those fixtures having filters and being exposed to that heat, and at 90 to 100 degrees, filters start to change uh, and become something more of a biohazard than a filter. And so we were really concerned about not knowing when that happened. And thus, you know, okay, we'll just replace every filter at the start of the school year. Well, then you're not being efficient with the filters. Uh, timely replacement. It's hard enough for get, to me for me to get my team to do the preventative maintenances on the boilers in the winter, um, much less water fountains in the summer. Um, it's just not a focus of their, uh, of the needs. There's a lot of demands on our building engineers. Um, eight hours a day, a lot of demands. We're, 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 less, we're less staffed than we were. Um, and so we were looking for ways to solve the problem without causing us a lot of operating cost. And basically, that's what it comes down to us. How do we mitigate our operating cost and make sure the water's safe? Um, Our primary solution with the help of Chicago Water Management was flushing. And at first, it was manual flushing. So after that first round of testing, we realized very quickly that the 294 schools that stagnant water was bad. So we asked, we asked our, uh, our building engineering team at the time, I wasn't in, uh, in charge of asset, I asked them to quickly put through, um, do, go out and do a flushing test. Our water management said, hey, go out go out to the top of your risers, turn your buildings over, get fresh water into the system. And uh, you'll see here shortly, that was not very cost effective for us. Um, we're tr- with, with flushing, we're trying to be scalable. You know, We can adjust it to the school. Uh, every school is unique. Uh, we will use u- manual, automatic, and a combination of those. Um, we're looking for ways we can verify that the systems are working in that, A, the building engineer is doing the manual flushing, and B, that the flushing, you know, basically the flushing is getting done. How do I feel sure, oh, I'm sorry, ooh, uh How do I feel sure that the water's safe at any given school, so that if somebody calls me up and says, hey, is the water safe outside my daughter's kindergarten room, I can say yes, and that's my goal. Um, Without having to go out there and instantly test it, so to speak, um, our long-term goal is to install automatic flushing systems. And um, you know, this is after a little bit of discussion and a lot, a of, lot of discussion about how do we automatically flush our buildings. A, it takes away the building engine; it takes away from the building engineer, and it gives us consistency. We know that the water is being turned over, and we can turn it over as often as we like, or we can turn it off. Um, It reduces stagnation, tailored to the school, and we can control it for occupancy. Uh, Flushing, the advantages. All right, we'll go on here. Flushing counteracts the effects of stagnation. I think that's our number one goal here. If we have fresh water in the system, we're gonna be in pretty good shape. Uh, If we got old stagnant water, we're gonna have problems. Stagnation kills us. Uh, the idea is to flush, uh, right now we're manual flushing, so the idea is that they're, they're going in in the morning, they're reducing that stagnation time from anywhere from you know, eight to 16 hours. Some schools, some of our schools, when, they, when, when the kids leave at three o'clock, that building is not used, uh, it's just done. And there's no after school activities, there's no communal usage. In other buildings I have, I'm getting seven days a week, 16 hours a day of usage. And so each building is unique and different. Um, the key to flushing is that it flushes any subtle particulates, anything that we've sloughed off into the system that fell off from the galvanized overnight. And most importantly, I think, and this is something that we've learned, it stimulates the application of the orthophosphates. And orthophosphates are put into our water by Chicago Water Management to help protect in, uh, from corrosion in our systems. So we're trying to stimulate the application of that orthophosphate with the auto flushing and we're exercising the system, is kind of the way I describe it. Like, you know, if you want to be healthy, you got to do push-ups, right? Well, if you want a drinking fountain to be healthy, you got to make it exercise. It's got to keep moving. It can't be stagnant and, you know, sit for three months. It's got to move. Exercise is important. Uh, Flushing stimulates the usage uh, where none would normally occur. So that's kind of the key with this. And I think most importantly, and this is what we've seen in some of our pilots, the kids... It improves the water quality, which is what I'm, did it again, which is what I'm looking for, but it also improves the perception of the water quality in the school. And so the kids, where they never would drink it before, are now going and filling up at that ugly 1962 mauve porcelain sink, they're actually using that. And to me, that's pretty amazing, because I tend to go to the silver ones, at least I know they're newer. but because the kids know and they understand that the water does taste good they will use those fixtures that are not that would not traditionally be used in my mind you know so i think that's one of the keys is getting the occupants of the building to understand that, hey your water is good it tastes good it's cold clear and fresh and you shouldn't you know you can drink it and i will give the story of you know i spent a lot of time in the schools bought more time in the schools in the summer than i do in the school year and you know when it's 100 degrees outside and you're walking through a construction site and you're on your eighth or ninth one of the day and you see that drinking fountain there, I really, really have to ask myself, am I willing to push that button and drink that water? And usually it's about 90 degree water and if I sit there and hold it for a few minutes I might get back to some cooler water, but generally it's stagnation. It might have been there for a month, six weeks, or whatever, so that's a, the, the perception is key my perception is key understanding um, the disadvantages of manual flushing it only uh, works well wor- it only works well when it's done right um, and I think one of the problems that we've had is it, well, a, it's, la- it's, it's time and labor cons- consuming right um, right now we're sending uh, our building engineers out for a one, one to two minute flush of every drinking fountain on a day after a school is out So generally, that's a Monday. Uh, We don't have many days off during the middle of the week, um, though we did with the snow days here, so we did our flushing twice in one week, a couple times. But send them out, every drinking fountain, every potable water source, they're supposed to flush one to two minutes before the start of school on a Monday. Um, Regretfully, if it's snowing, or if there's something wrong with the heating unit, or the air conditioner's down, the priority gets shifted. Um, so when we started doing this in June of 2016, uh, in August, we had 80% compliance uh, with our PMs. And then after September, we got up to 100%. I've had 100% compliance every week since that time. I don't believe it. Um, but the, you know it, it's a hard thing to call out, right? We know that it's not getting done to 100%. No one's perfect for that long. Um, but we know a lot of fixtures are getting flushed, and even if they're doing it every other week, there's still a benefit to it. Um, and of course, flushing water loss down the drain, and that's a key. And I should add, at this point, Chicago Public Schools does not pay for its water. We get free water from the city of Chicago because we sold them midway and they didn't have any cash, so they gave us free water in perpetuity. Um, but we'll see if that lasts much longer, because it is, you know, it is a significant cost. I mean, you know. Uh, CPS flushing, this is a brief fixture, kind of going over this, you know, fixtures aren't being used. Um, So we looked at flushing, and we looked at doing riser flushing, and and overall building flushing. That was what we really wanted to do, is have the building engineers come in every Monday morning and basically turn over the entire plumbing system by hitting the risers, going up to the third floor, fourth floor, running the vanity sinks, and just turning that water over in every riser. Well, we did some time studies it took one hour in an elementary school, and it took four and a half hours for two building engineers to do our second largest school, Lane Tech, 750,000 square feet. They only have two building engineers on staff. So you know, it became pretty obvious that we weren't gonna be able to efficiently do that and, and still do all the other stuff that we're trying to do in the district. So that's where we, you know, 470, 470 building engineers, but 527 campuses. And some of those building engineers are double stacked at high schools. So we have a lot, of, a lot of elementary schools where they're what we call potted, where the building engineer will be between one or two or three buildings. So in those cases, we have to enlist the custodians to help us with the flushing programs. Uh, luckily, Food Services was ahead of us on all of this and they already had a protocol in place. They've had it in place for five or six years now where they're going in every morning and they basically turn on the spigots in the, in the tri-basins and their fixtures, their food prep sinks, and they run those. They'll run them for 30 or 40 minutes. So we're getting a good flushing from them as well, but we don't count that as part of our flushing. Preventative maintenance flushing. So this is what I mentioned the, the work order, one to two minutes, we put this in. Uh, you know, long story short, pencil whipping does exist in the United States and it's much easier to do when you have a computer and all you have to do is this. Um, so that, that's a big concern for us because I know that it's not accurate and it, it makes me nervous. Um, the preventive maintenance, I consider it a, a short-term solution, but it is one that really helped us. In 2016, we put it in in the summer. Uh, we did all of our, our, our elementary schools, basically, and then we did the older schools in the fall, finished up our round of testing. of our high schools are underutilized. Uh, Some of our high schools as low as 10 or 12%. Uh, I have one school designed for 1,100 kids and it has 62 in it. So we have a lot of those buildings. Uh, When we closed schools back in 2013, we did not close any high schools um, because of the the issues surrounding and the politics and all that, and we can talk about that all day long. Those schools I was really concerned about, because here I have have 50% of my high schools are highly underutilized, I mean significantly underutilized, but we believe that our preventative maintenance flushing, the one to two minutes, really helped those schools when we came and tested in the fall. Because instead of that fixture just sitting there for six months or a year, it was at least getting exercised every week, or to a degree. so that was, I think, really helped us in the fall because going into the fall, I was really concerned after learning that flushing was tough, um, and that we, were, you know, if, we're, if water was stagnant, you're going to have problems. I was looking at those big schools and those old schools and saying, "Oh, we're going to have a lot of problems." But I think that flushing really helped us to, you know, at least turn over the building. Um <clears> the <throat> rest of that. Automated flushing. So. Once we realized this was going to cost us a lot of man uh we were, we were sitting down and we were talking with water management. We were talking with the Illinois Department of Public Health. And water management, one of the, the senior water quality specialists there was like, hey, why don't you, you know, once I showed him how much it was going to cost me in time, he's like, hey, why don't you throw a solenoid on a riser and just have that do your work for you? And we're like, okay, well, how would we do that? And so he gave us some parts, and then we got our our architects and our engineers together, and we started putting together some um, basic riser auto-flushing concepts that we ended up putting in. Um, And I'll get to those in a second. Um, But what I like about automated flushing is consistent, constant, and controlled. Um, The consistent and constant is something I can't get with my staff. Uh, But I can get it with a piece of electronics. Eliminate stagnation, it interrupts the lead equilibrium. And this is something I learned after, I didn't know what lead equilibrium was in 2016 and I learned afterwards, but that's basically what I'm trying to combat. I don't want the lead levels to get back up in my building. They will if they sit, but if I can combat that and short circuit that, I've done a lot to improve my water quality. Automated flush water quality, it's cold and clear. One of the nice things about this is when you turn the water over in the morning and you actually empty out your plumbing system, You're bringing nice cold water in from the main at 58 or 59 degrees, and that makes a substantial difference versus a building that's heated at 75 and has been sitting overnight. The water quality is much better. Uh, Automated flushing can can be programmable, and it can be tied to the BAS system relatively easily. Um, Most importantly, it allows my building engineers to do something else more important for them at that school at that time, it takes this this preventative maintenance out of their box. We have a couple different types of automated flushing now we 've got the main um, where we've actually gone in and flushed a main just to get when we have a long main or a long service line we'll flush that directly and then we'll flush the risers. Um, we also use direct and indirect flushing of the fixtures themselves uh, drinking fountains mainly so I call it "take a hint." The hint came from uh, Chicago Water Management, and our team put together this, this system, so to speak. And I, I think this is a good example of what you kind of what a typical system is. But basically, uh, one half, three quarter, one inch solenoid, um, control timer, a throttle, because um, you don't want the, you don't want this automated riser at 55 pounds of pressure shooting off a one inch hose because it will be a fire hose, so we throttle it down to 25%. We don't want to disrupt the system, we want to flush the system. Uh, good options uh, when access and space allow for installing it. If you can get to it, this is a nice thing to put in. Uh, you have to be careful though, because in, in this example here, this is Onahan Elementary School, the water went and discharged to a, um, a janitor sink, and regretfully, our the way our cleaning crews work now is they don't make a pass and do a sweep. They just make one pass and they use a machine and they suck everything up that they find and they clean the floors at the same time and then they take that um, mess of kids after a day of eating in their classrooms and Cheerios and all that stuff and then they dump that into the janitor's sink and then the janitor's sink clogs up and then I get a waterfall from the third floor coming down. So that was a real, that was a real problem for us because actually at this school it happened three times to us. Um, and so we're, we're sorry. okay, we have to be concerned about that, and how do we work with that? We, have, um, we developed five versions of how we would control this based upon the complexity of the, build, uh, the school's building automation system. So if it's modern, we can tie it right into the BAS. If it's pneumatic, it can be standalone with a timer. And there's a range in there. We have, all right. There's, so there's a little closer-up picture of Onahan, the timer. More innovation. This is a story I like to tell. Um, in the fall of 2016, I got a phone call from one of my lead facility managers telling me, Rob, you've got to come out to Von Steuben High School. I'm like, why do I need to come out to Von Steuben High School? He goes, don't ask, just show up. I'm like, okay, interesting. So I go out there and... Uh, There's a building engineer there by the name of Michael Ramos. um, And he had come up with, developed a way to automatically flush the drinking fountain. And he did this, uh, you know, invention is the mother of necessity, right? Uh, He was a guy that was a building engineer at a school that was about 200,000 square feet. He got moved up to a school with 300,000 square feet, and he didn't have any help. And he was really concerned about the water quality but knew he couldn't get around to that entire building every Monday morning with everything he needed to do, so he sat down at home and came up with uh, what he calls the NOAA. Um, it's an auto, a drinking fountain automated flushing system. Uh, it fits in the drinking fountain, uh, needs 110 power, and it directly flushes the fixture and the riser and indirectly flushes the fixtures and the risers around it. I shouldn't say the fixtures around it, not the risers, but, but does flush the riser. It's the same concept as our riser flusher, but it allows a lower volume for a longer period of time. So if the, cl- the drain does clog up, I'm not getting 80 or 100 or 200 gallons coming out of the system, I'm getting five or six. I can deal with a five or six gallon spill if the, dr- if the uh, drain clogs up. 60, 80, 100, 200 gallons is a lot harder. Uh, significantly reduces the stagnation time at the fixture. Uh, so our concern has always been that last foot and a half, two, three feet of pipe. Um, you know, people could be going to the bathroom but, and using the water in the building, but what, who's exercising that last three feet? And this solves that problem. Um, programmable flushing, uh, basically it's a microchip, a computer and a solenoid that allows us to program the flushing that we want for that, for that particular location. Generally, we've been starting with a three minute flush every hour um, when the school's open. Or pro- uh, open um, Simple install, one module can do multiple fixtures, so if you've got two or three fixtures in a row, picking the highest, furthest one and putting the drinking fountain auto-flusher on that will take care of those other two as well. Um, biggest impact is at the top of the riser, and I should say, that, you know, anytime you're flushing from the top of the riser, that's the best thing because you're pulling water through the system. Uh, automated flushing, so here's a little picture of it. This is an early prototype. This was the one that I got... That was the one I got to see. Uh, and that kind of changed our whole thinking about how we were going to do our next pilot. Because um, it, it, it changes the whole, you don't have to get into the. So the first school that he put these in um, was his school, Von Steuben. And here's the side of the work, first working prototype. I now believe he has all of the risers are being flushed at this school uh, with drinking fountain risers. He, he took uh, risers of drinking fountains over, but yes? Oh, okay, I'm gonna keep going on that then. Uh, another idea uh, and I, is a trickle, a trickle uh, flusher, and this came from Chicago Water Management. You can just kind of see it right here, but basically water management said, put a quarter inch valve, tap in, and do a constant flow coming off of that drinking fountain, which I think is a great idea. The problem for us is that little whip is movable, so it can be pushed out and out of the drinking fountain, or it can be broken off and used as a weapon, right? Or, an, or just vandalism. So we don't like where people can see water running because then they think they can stop it or they can divert it, and so that's a concern for us. We want this to be out of sight and out of mind. Or Pilot, or the or High, the interesting thing about or High School, um, real quickly, 300,000 square foot building, identified as having poor water quality prior to testing, Uh, Building is shared by a high school, a charter school, and a YMCA daycare, but at the time we put this in, it was probably only 30% occupied. Uh, Goals comprehensively flush the system, develop models and templates for applications across the district from what we learned there. Um, Initially, we were going to use the riser flushers at our high school, um, but the The tops of the risers were encased in masonry and encased in asbestos. The drinking fountain uh, auto-flusher allowed us to change that perception and say, hey, we don't have to get into the walls, we can just go to the fixture. And that saved us a significant amount of money. Um, Use of auto-flushing, commercial sink fixtures in key areas, too. We also use, Moen's got an auto-flushing fixture that if it's not used in 24 hours, it'll automatically flush for 30 seconds. Uh, I don't think that's quite enough flushing but it is the start of a right idea. So there's just some pictures, I can say. Uh, real quick, uh, the interesting thing about Ore, uh, big school, the water mains comes in from the north, comes through the building, does a big loop, and then supplies up to the school. So we've got a lot of pipe before the kids even actually get to the water, and so that was a key for us, making sure we were flushing that system uh, comprehensively. Uh, just to go over our pilots, once we, had, uh, we installed the auto-flushing system at OR, and it's a combination of drinking and all that. How much time have I got? Yeah, keep going. So anyway... <laughs> um, so the OR pilot, we basically got it running, had it running for four or five months, then we came back and did a comprehensive five-sequential test across every fixture in the, de- in, in the building. And then we had Layola University partners, fine partners. Layola University Sustainable Lab uh, came out and helped us, and so we had them focus on our auto-flushed locations and studying our auto-flushed locations, and that, that gave us gave me a lot of cheap testing and a lot of knowledge and insight from a guy who really knows water quality. Because I could, I should say, I'm not a scientist. Um, we had the flushing time set at three minutes per hour. Another side quick story, we were planning on tying this into the, uh, the lighting system, so when the lights were on, the auto-flushing system would work, and when it was first turned on, it would run for 10 minutes, and then three minutes every hour after that. Well, the lighting was 277 we and we would need $30,000 worth of transformers, so we said, nope, let's just reprogram these, and they basically run, uh, they initially were running 24-7, uh, f- three minutes every hour. So we had a very good flushing for four or five months, and then we came in and did the testing, um, and then we, once we realized we'd gotten some pretty good results, which I'll show you here shortly, we then kicked it down to one minute per hour, and to see if that was, you know, what's enough, what's enough flushing? And every school's unique, but that's the idea. Um, so our median parts per billion. Uh, on our original round of testing in 2016 was um, six, what was it, almost uh, two, I should say, 16. Um, Two, and regretfully, our testing, and uh, my, I, if I can make one recommendation to everybody, is use a lab that tests to the thousands. Because a lab that goes to five as a non-detect or two as a non-detect skews everything that you do mathematically. Uh, so even in this building where we had some, some significant issues, um, some stuff you know counts as uh, the 90th percentile of 16, our median parts per billion was still two because most of the fixtures were fine. We just had 10 or 12 that were giving us real problems. So mathematically, that's, that skews the math, and it makes it look like this building is better than it is. So you have to use different math, different, uh, different things to say, hey, where's, where are really my problems in a, in a building? Um, the key was, you know, we had a two, uh, with the testing in January of all sequ- sequential, we got it down to 1.12, um, median parts per billion. And then at the directly flushed, drinking fountains, we got it down to 0.5. And then we turned the system off for 44 hours and we came back and tested it again. And it only went up to 0.79. So you can see from this, and I'm more than willing to share all these uh, numbers and stuff. So same thing with 90th percentile, we see it going down. Even when we have stagnation and we turn the system off, it still protects the system, and I think this is the key. When you flush, not only are you flushing out the old water, but you're, we're stimu- in Chicago, we're stimulating the application of orthophosphates to the system. So what we saw from our pilot program was even though the system was off for six days and stagnant over spring break, the levels did not go up that much. They only went from, uh, I think, 0.5 to 0.8. And we believe, our theory is, that because we were exercising the fixtures and running water through and building up that orthophosphate, we basically generated a protection within the system that allowed us to turn off and not use the building but not see rapid increases in our lead concentration because the orthophosphates were doing their work. And so that's what we really like. I'm almost there. So real quickly for CPS, um, our next plans are one, uh, next week I'm gonna start testing 25% of our schools uh, on a four year cycle, it's not mandated by state law, it's what CPS decided to do. Um, So we'll start going through our testing cycle again. Uh, We're expanding our pilot, water auto flushing pilot to 25 schools and those are the 25 worst elementary schools that we had from the first round of testing. So we're gonna target the highest needs First, uh, develop program to apply across, we're trying to you know, learn how we can apply this across the district and basically make it very simple to go through our 527 campuses without having architects do all the work for us. That you know, Basically, my crew can say, all right, I need an auto flusher here, I need an auto flusher here, and I need to do this. So build those templates. Uh, we're gonna continue the flushing protocols with an auto. Sh- eventually shifting to auto f- uh, flushing probably over the next three or four years. Uh, retesting all the potable water sources on a four-year cycle, and we're looking at how do we use big data and information monitoring to monitor our water quality system. Um, And right now we're doing a study with Loyola University to better understand the concentrations of orthophosphates that's actually arriving at the school. We know what's coming out of the plant in downtown Chicago, but what am I getting out by O'Hare? And does that change my flushing Protocols. Closing thoughts. Um, you know, for us, it's how do we maintain water quality between tests? Tests are just a snapshot in time, and a fixture that's good today may be terrible in a week, uh, for a number of reasons, but or in a month. So it's just a, a snapshot in time, and that's why we like auto flushing because it allows us we know that the system's functioning, it's moving, it's turning water over. <clears throat> So how can I say that the water is safe? Um, most importantly, every school is unique. Uh, yet they're all the same. Um, every community school I've been in <clears throat> has the same basic things. It just the school operates on a different level, different occupancy, uh, different community involvement. You know, some some have student, or some have parents groups that go out and buy uh, drinking fountains for the school. Others don't have anything. So every school is unique, and you have to look at that. Uh, most importantly, I think, is ask for help. Uh, I, I wouldn't be here talking to you guys today about our program if I didn't have the help from Chicago Water Management, the Illinois Department of Public Health, Illinois EPA. They were all very helpful and were uh, resources for us to understand what was going on and how we could best combat it. And I think it's become a mutual relationship now where we're both sharing ideas back and forth. Um, the other thing I'll say is transparency. Transparency saved me. Um, For those of you who don't know Chicago, we get we're in the paper every other day. And if we weren't transparent about our lead testing protocols, our protocols, our sampling, everything, we would be still in the papers right now. And what we did was we said, okay, we're gonna get our test results at, you know, our rough test results come back at nine o'clock, they're QA, QC'd by four o'clock. By four o'clock, I'm talking to the principal, telling them what we're going to do. And then um, a letter is going to the school. And the next day, the, the, the school and the parents and everybody is getting that information. Um, and, so, and then it's posted to a website. So we weren't hiding anything, we weren't, everything was out front. And I think that's key because once they saw that we were showing them what our results were, the protocols were legitimate and that we were addressing the issue, the heat went down significantly, and that allowed us to focus on actually solving the problem versus writing emails about how we were gonna solve the problem. Um, and the other thing I'll mention too is code changes. We're looking, uh, State of Illinois is looking at changing the sizes of our pipes. Um, you know, one of the problems is we got, I got new schools with dual 16-inch mains coming into the building. I don't need that. I, what if I just had dual eights or 116? Then I don't have to move as much water through my system. And that. Is my don't be a fish out of water um, I look forward thank you very much i sorry for
1: thanks so much Rob um, that that was very helpful I think and very interesting uh palace can if you could join us now i uh that would be great um because we can organize ourselves here. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, I should have said last time that we have a section of the site on round tables. We will have this presentation up on the site and we will also have a podcast of the entire um, round table in case you wanna hear it again or share it with you know, colleagues or something like that. So um, you don't have to. I, I saw one wo- woman taking pictures. Just go to, to njspotlight.com and under the roundtable um, section. Um, I also noticed uh, that uh, Governor Florio has joined us. Thank you, Governor Florio. Um, wanted to note that. And uh, one other thing, oh, well, and what I want to do is introduce John Hurdle. John Hurdle is uh, NJ Spot, he's become, he's a contributing editor, and he has become sort of our water expert. He's been covering a lot of um, pollution issues in our water. He covers the Delaware um, River and the, um, the, uh, the preserves over there that. Um, provide most of our drinking water. He also, just so you know, he also writes for the New York Times, and he also writes for State Impact, which on the other side of the river um, does some of what we do, uh, water here. They do. Um, it's, on, it's on the uh, NPR site, I think, and WHYY site, and they cover the other side of the Delaware River. So, John, John will introduce our panelists, and join us.
6: Well, thank you very much, Lee, and good morning, everybody. Um, we, we've uh, we've now heard a very um, uh, eloquent framing of the issues from from two of our, our first two speakers this morning. Uh, from from Chris Sturm, who was uh, who is, who has stated essentially what the uh, what the problem is that we have to get to grips with uh, here in New Jersey, uh, and then we've just and then we've just heard uh, from um, from Rob. Uh, Uh, gave us an extremely detailed description of of how his his authority has dealt with the problem. And so what I hope we're going to do now is to um, uh, gather some views from our very distinguished panelists here uh, as to how all of this um, can be implemented in New Jersey now that we have Uh, the uh, $100 million uh, uh, that's been made available through the bond funding that uh, of course Chris referred to at the beginning. Um, So I I, I need to begin first of all by uh, introducing our panel Um, and uh, first of all uh, immediately to my left, uh, State Senator Linda Greenstein. Uh, She's the Assistant Majority Leader for the New Jersey, Jersey State Senate. Um, She's the the Chair of the Law and Public Safety Committee and the Vice-Chair of the Environment and Energy Committee and she is a former member of the Legislature's Joint Committee on Public Schools. Uh, To her left, Dan Kennedy, who's the Director of Environmental and Utility Operations for the Utility and Transportation Contractors Association, uh, which is a trade association representing about a thousand uh, members uh, from the uh, public and uh, private utility sectors. Um, uh, Let's see, to his left, uh, we've got uh, Jerry Waits, Legislative Council and Policy Advisor for the United Association of Journeymen and Apprentices of the Plumbing and Pipe Fitting Industry. Did I get that right, Jerry? <laughs> Excellent. That's a relief. Uh, so that's a trade group uh, that represents about 340,000 plumbers, pipe fitters uh, and other trades in local unions across america uh to jerry's left uh we have uh, valerie wilson who's the school business administrator for um newark public schools uh valerie led the testing and treatment of lead in the water of newark schools, starting in 2016 uh, a program that attracted national attention as a way of uh, dealing with lead and i hope we're going to hear a lot more about that um, and finally, we've got Mike Fury, who is the legislative liaison for the American Water Works Association, the New Jersey section, um, and an adjunct professor uh, for Rutgers University. Uh, the AWWA is a nonprofit uh, society dedicated to ensuring uh, the effective uh, management of water and it represents uh, some uh, 3,900 utilities supplying about 80% of the nation's drinking water. So uh, again, thank you all for joining us. Um, and um, we're now going to have a, a very brief opening statements from all of our panelists, and I'd like to start with Senator Greenstein.
7: Good morning, everybody. Um, it's nice to see all of you um i my impression i heard about half or a little more than half of the gentlemen from chicago I think we have a lot we can learn from there, so I do intend to try to speak with him further to learn more. But I was asked today to just very briefly talk about two things that I've worked on. Um, One is the uh, I was co-chair of the Joint Legislative Task Force on Drinking Water Infrastructure, which met from about 2016 to 2018. And um, I was asked to talk a little bit about the background of that, why we formed that. And the other is our law, Securing Our Children's Future Bond Act. I was a co-sponsor of that, and that gave us $100 million for school district water infrastructure. And many of us are wondering how that will be implemented. And I think the short answer to that is we're not sure yet, but I'll I'll talk a little more about it. Um, So those are my two Um, involvements, you might say, with the drinking water. Now the drinking water task force uh, that I was co-chair of was founded and formed based on concerns over the condition of the state's drinking water infrastructure. Um, There was a bill, SCR 86, that formed the committee. Um, It was also partially prompted by the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and the fear that many of our citizens were being exposed to dangerous levels of lead. Uh, When we first started, we were going to have a couple of very lengthy sessions, and we weren't going to do one specifically on lead, but there was a real outcry to do that, and uh, we did have a special session on lead. So there's a very good transcript out there of, of the many great speakers that we had. Part of the task force's mission was to define the problems of lead in drinking water in schools, uh, to give opinions on how to deal with the problem and, most importantly, to answer the question of how to pay for large-scale remediation. One of the things I picked up from our Chicago guest is that you really can't do that. You just can't do the very large-scale remediations, with the, even with the monies that we've been given. Uh, so what you have to do is come up with very good, organized methods of trying to solve the problem, I'd say, on a smaller scale. Um, One of the key problems we found with regard to lead in school water is that it's leaching from pipes, solder, and plumbing fixture over to the taps. Lead, as we all know in here, is especially harmful to developing brains and can cause brain damage and disabilities. And it's not just an inner city problem or a rural problem, it's an older community problem. Um, Lead was discovered in all 21 counties in our state. Uh, So we have to make tough decisions about how we're going to address the fact that our children are really being poisoned because no amount of lead is safe for children, not even a tiny amount. In July of 2016, the Department of Education, in collaboration with the Department of Environmental Protection, developed regulations for lead sampling for schools, and they were supposed to be followed by all of the public schools. Obviously, if we don't collect information, we can't make decisions. Um, So this information, at this point, even though people were given a one-year extension, schools should have really provided this information. Um, There was $10 million appropriated through the budget to allow the public schools to do the testing. Um, Lead is definitely prevalent in our school's water, or at least as it goes through the system, but to our knowledge, and we have not been able to find out if the DOE has collected much data from the schools, Um, The information we have goes back a year or two and it shows that many, many schools did not comply. Um, Some complied but didn't make the information available to DOE, so there has not been a good collection of data. They were supposed to test water outlets and conduct a lead sampling plan to survey entry, flow, plumbing materials and fixtures. As of August 2017, only 16% of New Jersey's 600 school districts sent required lead testing information to the uh, Department of Ed, and we've been unable to get updated information. The DOE regulation requires that while all school districts must test for lead and make these results publicly available. Only districts with lead levels that meet the action level of 15 parts per billion must be submitted to DOE. So again, without a full accounting, it's impossible to make effective decisions. Um, I do think that the DOE needs to do a better job of enforcing and setting up an organized lead testing program and also in communicating this information to the public. And I feel that these testing regulations need to be revised to be comprehensive and uniform and that all schools must apply. Uh, The bill that I mentioned, Saving Our Children's Future Bond Act, had a section with hundred million dollars for school district water infrastructure. This provides for review and approval and eligibility criteria for school district water infrastructure improvement grants. It's left very open-ended. It's established by the Commissioner of Education, again working with the DEP. At this point, we're not aware, Uh, we're sort of doing this at a time where we're not aware of um, what is going to be happening. I don't think the bonding has started yet, at least to my knowledge, uh, or that there's any real planning for how this money is going to be spent. Um, I personally feel that uh, rather than just giving a little to every district, we should identify the districts with the greatest need, high lead levels in the schools, and who really can't afford to do the remediation themselves. And we should um, parcel it out because 100 million won't go very far. Uh, It's estimated that the cost of repairing all water lines exceeds $8 billion. We only have a fraction of that amount, so we have to make the best use of the money. I'm not going to get into some of these other. There's all sorts of other things about flushing and corrosion, and I'm not going to get into those water filters. You've heard a lot about that today. Um, I also think we we need to educate people, especially parents of school-age children, about the presence and dangers of lead in drinking water, and that way we can mobilize people better to make sure that um, water lines are being replaced and that. Uh, their children are safe. So thank you very much, and um, I look forward to the rest of the panel. Thank you.
8: Yeah, John, yeah, you sure. To, yeah. I'm just gonna sit down, yeah. Yeah, that's
6: fine.
8: So um, thank you all for your attendance today and uh, for uh, your focus on this issue. Um, my name's is, uh, Dan Kennedy. Before my role with UTCA, I served as Assistant Commissioner for Water Resource Management at the DEP. Um, during my time at the DEP, um, all the news on Flint hit. Uh, and my counterpart in the state of Michigan was being indicted and uh, potentially spending some time in jail. So you could, you could uh, sense that um, my urgency to get up on this issue and to ensure that I was doing my job the best I could in my role in state government, um, it was definitely in the front of my mind. I had the uh, um, ability to present uh, our work to the uh, uh, task force that Senator Greenstein, Um, mentioned and um, I think that uh, we were able to put uh, a pretty good foot forward knowing that there was still a a bunch of work to be done. This was a couple years ago and the the new leadership at the DEP uh, I believe has continued um, the focus on water infrastructure and deserves uh, a ton of credit uh, to continuing that work and that focus. Um, I want to mention very clearly that the legislation doesn't just say lead. right? The legislation says water quality, uh, it supports construction, reconstruction, rehab, replacement, uh, for the purpose of improving water quality in school districts. Uh, I wouldn't uh, put out there that lead is not the top priority, but there are districts out there that have their own water systems, that they're actually they're producing their own water. They may be on wells, and they may have issues with groundwater. They may have issues with new uh, emerging contaminants like PFCs. Um, they may have issues uh, with, uh, maybe they're in a rural area and have issues with nitrates. And those issues are also um, important and will, would impact if in the water of the school district would impact the health of our, of our children. So um, we would encourage, the UTCA would encourage that um, the state uh, DOE can, looks wide, as widely as the legislation allows and considers that uh, not just lead but all issues in drinking water are considered for, for, for eligibility. Um, We also want the state to consider uh, the accountability to the taxpayers. This is a really big step the state took. Bonding $100 million is not a small deal for water infrastructure. And and as the senator mentioned, this is just the first step. Uh, We also need to raise utility rates. We want to make sure that all the additional money spent on water infrastructure, whether it's on premise, in terms of in buildings, in the streets, at the treatment plants, supporting our source water, is done in a way that actually solves problems and not just spends money. So we think that um, accountability and transparency is a big part of any dollar spent by the state of New Jersey uh, in the sense of water infrastructure because we're gonna need more of it. This hundred million dollars is a good start, but just a start. We think that long-term fixes should be the priority and and for the highest exposure points um, and not the short-term fixes that may be, uh, you know, in terms of uh, getting things done right away like filters We think that infrastructure uh, means pipes in the road, pipes leading into the buildings, and the pipes and fixtures that the kids drink from in the schools. So uh, I have some ideas for the DOE that we'll share during the Q&A, but we think that it's smart for utility contractors to be working with schools, uh, and those that are working in the schools are primarily gonna be the building trades, the plumbers, to make sure that we're seeing from source to tap uh, as complete of a solution as possible. Uh, and the, the, the things that Robert mentioned about filters and schools, um, I saw firsthand uh, when Newark hit and I met uh, Miss Wilson, I met the, the great people uh, that, that work and run Newark Water. And you walk around uh, those hallways and you realize they're, they're um, custodians and engineers, how much work they put into this day to day. You realize when you walk past the filter and there's got Three or four years of paint on it when you know they paint over the summers and the filters got three colors of paint on it those filters are three or four years old right so um what robert said about chicago i think is true in uh, in new jersey and probably true nationwide so we really should be seeking the longer term solutions not just in our urban uh, communities but in all older communities in the state of new jersey i live in a place that uh, most uh, you know i think by the nature it's called a city the city of bordentown um, one of our most famous residents was Thomas Paine, so you can tell we've been around for quite some time. Uh, we're an older community, and we have issues with our lead pipes um, in our schools uh, and on our system. So it's not just a an urban, classic urban uh, versus non-urban community thing. We think that we should be focusing on older communities. And I want to acknowledge uh, the capacity of water professionals in the state of New Jersey, both in our in our state agencies like the DEP, the IBank, Um, The credit needs to go to those folks as well. Also the volunteers that work for organizations like the AWWA. Mike's here representing today. The investor-owned utilities bring a lot to the table. Uh, They supply over 40% of the state with drinking water. Uh, And they have um, world-class staff that could also be brought to bear to help um, school districts. So my, my ending statement in the opening here is that school districts and the DOE shouldn't start from scratch. We should build on the capacity we have in this state to manage water systems. We should bring in all that capacity in to make sure that we get the biggest bang for our buck out of this hundred million dollars. Thank you.
6: Thank you very much. Um, and uh, before, before I ask Jerry to give us his opening statement, I just want to say that there's been several mentions of the, uh, of the DOE and how the DOE um, uh, will, will implement any of this. Uh, the, I just want you all to know that the DOE was invited to participate in this event and they declined. Jerry,
9: please. Um, an emerging crisis is kind of what you start to get the picture of here. My name's Jared Waits, I'm here on behalf of the United Association of Plumbers and Pipefitters and uh, their New Jersey pipe trades. These folks are on the ground out there with this, these issues every day. With me today is Jim McManus from the Plumbers Local in Newark, his, his members are in the schools in Newark. Replacing, doing, putting in filters and things like that to address these problems. Um, it is really an emergency, emerging crisis. I mean, there's some statistics that say uh, in New Jersey, um, 1.5 million out of nine million people are using water that's in violation of safety standards. That's like 17, if there's 100 people in this room, that's like 17 of, of us are using that. And that's just a little glimpse. We, our organization, um, and I, I do policy and legislative work for the UA, we call it the UA. Um, we, like a lot of people, started paying attention to this issue. You know, Clint is a terrible tragedy and travesty, but the one silver lining is that a lot of people in this room are here in part because we've all started looking at this, issue this issue a lot more since Flint. And that's what we did, and we got involved. We had a lot of people volunteering and donating time and resources to help the people in Flint. Um, And then we did a really serious deep dive on the research across the country that was happening with these issues. And what we found is really fascinating, I will tell you from the start, um, it's an infinitely complex issue. I've been doing policy issues for 20 plus years. I've never seen something this challenging. You I mean, you need scientists and health officials. you need lots of expertise. and um, you know we appreciate uh, New Jersey spotlight doing this. It's a very worthy cause what they're doing here today, and, and the Senator for helping the, getting the funding for this. Um, it's really good for New Jersey to get ahead of this, because while there's problems there, people aren't getting sick yet. The problems are just being to be identified. New York is in a lot worse shape. They're having a lot of serious problems in New York. So when we did this research, just quickly, what we found is, um, first of all, you have to understand that the problems with water can come three places. The original source, when it, whatever the source may be, a reservoir or a lake, um, you can have contaminants there, you can have contaminants that the water utilities are not even testing for, and so they get, get through and nobody even knows it. And then you basically have inside the fence and outside the fence, and outside the fence is the entire water utility infrastructure that the treatment plants and the pipes that deliver it. You can have all sorts of problems throughout there, and we are, and mostly from <coughs> decaying infrastructure. Inside the fence is the internal plumbing and piping of the buildings. And guess what? The infrastructure on the outside is 50, 100 years old. The inside of the buildings, the piping systems are just as old, and we have problems there. So that's the kind of context. And what we found, we found uh, it's not just lead, as, as Dan alluded to here. We found three major uh, contaminant categories. Uh, With lead, there there was one report showing over 3,000 jurisdictions from Reuters, a research group, uh, journalists, and over 3,000 jurisdictions with lead worse than Flint. There's another report, we have a white paper on this, this, we're, we're glad to share it. Another report showed over half the states, I think, with chemical contaminants in water. And then there's a third statistic, that the federal government is very focused on with the over 200% increase in Legionnaires' disease which can be de- deadly uh, caused by the bacteria Legionella. Um, so these three ca- contaminants are across the board. The report that I mentioned from New Jersey saying 1.5 million people uh, exposed, that's all categories of contaminant, not just lead. Now lead, I think the spotlight did the story and showed 400 schools in New Jersey with lead. Clearly lead up front, and in this issue with this, it's up front, but as Dan suggested, you know, it may be a good idea if you wouldn't go out there and do a battery of tests, or, te- or a battery of all kinds of comprehensive testing across the schools, which you need to do, to also do some spot checking on these other issues, because, God forbid, you, you find out and you take steps to make sure it's lead free, and then somehow there's bacteria in, in the water. Bacteria co- is naturally in the environment, it comes in, what happens is it comes in and it can be safe but then it gets in a stagnant part of the water, just as the last presentation Rob showed, and with heat and stagnation, creates Legionella. So, you you know, God forbid you protect the kids from the one thing and then find out that there's something that we overlooked when we now know. So it's really good to have a cross-disciplinary team here, and I think one of our recommendations would be that to help the government, a a cross-disciplinary team should be form with people like Dan, engineers, building engineers, environmental engineers, health department, environmental department, master plumbers who do the plumbing code which is going to have to be rewritten in some regards um, as we go down the line. But it's a very complicated problem. It's coming at us fast and hard. And there are things to do. Last presentation was great. But there's a lot of things that have to be done inside the fence, outside the fence. And it's good that... You spark this debate today to get it focused and to help figure out the best steps on allocating this $100 million so you get the most out of it, and it's used efficiently, and you identify what's out there and what has to be done uh, right away and in the near future.
6: Thanks, Jerry.
4: Valerie. So, where do I begin? Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Valerie Wilson, and I am the School Business Administrator for the New York Public Schools. Newark is the third oldest city in the nation. My public school system dates back to 1676, if you want to talk about an old community. We have approximately seven million square feet of space. We have 34,000 kids. We are the largest system in New Jersey, and our buildings average 92 years old. One of my schools was built in 1839 and is still functioning today. It is uh, actually Lafayette Street School. Newton Street is actually older than that, but it's not functioning. So we talk about lead, and in, in March of 2016, our whole life turned around. We had actually had a major testing program in Newark for about 12 years courtesy of my former facilities director, Steve Morlino, who's currently in Patterson today. Um, We partnered with the water department. Kareem Adim is here, our director of City Water and Sewer. My project team, led by Vincent Hutchinson, is here. Lisa Abdul is my financial person. So it takes a team effort to make this happen. We tested over 8,000 outlets in our district. We're doing some of the same things that Rob talked about. We're doing a flushing protocol. Our custodians flush. They have to log it in Google Drive every single day. We put reverse osmosis systems in our kitchens, our big production kitchens. We have eight of those because we cook and transport to other schools across the district. By the way, we've got 70 schools that we operate on a daily basis. We have over 6,000 employees. So we are large. And unlike my colleague in Chicago, we had no budget for this. When it hit, it was on the ground, do what you can. Our mayor, we had a press conference that day. I'll never forget that day. We had a press conference, and our mayor said, I want people in the city to donate water, and I'm standing back there thinking, is he insane? Where am I gonna store it? How am I gonna deal with this? It was the best <clears throat> idea we could have had, because we had to use bottled water in over 22 of our schools, and we would not have been able to afford that, even with donations, and they came from everywhere. People brought a case to school, they brought a truck, uh, ShopRite gave us a trailer truckload, Our emergency management center kicked into gear. They activated the day we announced. And Dan and his team from the EPA and uh, the Department of Environmental Protection, we couldn't have done it without them. It would have been impossible. Everybody kicked in. Our emergency management center stored the water for us and delivered it to the schools. Because in case I didn't tell you, we don't have a maintenance budget. And we don't have a capital budget because we are a formerly Abbott district, now known as an SDA district. And I know my friends from the SDA are here. So we've gotten six new schools in the last uh, 15 years. Um, we're looking forward to more, but our infrastructure is old. It costs us $1.4 million to provide with the supplement of donated water to provide water and to begin our process of what we needed to do. If I have nothing else to say this morning, I must say that the solution cannot be the same for everybody because every district is not the same. Every district has some unique qualities. So when we have the conversation, people from the districts need to be sitting at the table. People from the cities and municipalities need to be sitting at the table. Our partners in the the trade industries need to be here because they're experts too, and our partners with the testing labs and other types of things that we can do because it was a combination of effort that made Newark successful in addressing this. And it came at a time when we least expected it. We thought we were fine. We'd been testing water for years. And we thought, okay, how bad can it be? Well, we found out. So we had priority one schools, 21 schools. We had priority two schools who had some levels of parts per billion higher than the normal, but they weren't as critical as the first set of schools. And our objective was to ensure that we provided safe water to all children as quickly as possible. I am happy today to tell you we've done some pipe pipe replacements. We've repiped two of our schools, but we're not going to repipe, you know, schools. I had a group of parents, schools built in 1881, Wilson Avenue. When are you going to replace our pipes? Okay. Hello. Your building is over its useful life. Okay? So would you like me to take you out of here for a year? Rip out all the walls, let's not talk about the asbestos and the other stuff we have, and replace all your pipes, and then bring you back after a year. Oh no, they don't wanna come out of their school. They don't wanna go someplace else. We know how that that works in schools. Everybody wants to stay right where they are, and you fix it around them. That's not gonna happen, and the 100 million, Let me tell you, if I were to replace my pipes in my buildings, our estimate is that it would cost us $37 million. I could eat that for breakfast. But we are appreciative of the effort. We want to be partners. We want to be there. We want to have the communication. And we want to ensure that we get something that works for everybody. So where we are in Newark is we are providing safe water to children. We have filters on all of our water coolers. We deal only with drinking sources. We have a protocol that says bathroom sinks, other sinks. We have signage up, and we check that that says, do not drink from this. It is not water which should be used for coffee making or for meals or any of that stuff. We do a flush protocol in the buildings. We do a flush protocol in the kitchens. We change and and uh, clean aerators on a monthly basis. We do all of that and we log in our Google Drives. We've set up a testing schedule because I can't wait six years to do the testing, and then do it all at one fell swoop. I'm going to do it on a cycle, so that by the time I get to six years, it's time to start my cycle over again. So all of that requires planning. But we are serving our children safe water. Our filters shut off automatically, because we had the problem of three and four-year filters. You know, Teachers union president went in and took shots and put it on Facebook. Oh look, they haven't changed the filters in years. And my tradespeople had not been keeping up with that. So we had to put those kinds of protocols in place. But it is a massive effort. It's something we need to do. We appreciate the fact that we're going to have 100 million and let's make sure that we use it as effectively as possible.
10: Thank you. Thank you very much. Mike. Hello, my name is uh, Mike Fury. I'm here representing the American Waterworks Association, the New Jersey section. Um, let me tell you something about the American Waterworks Association. The nationally, we have about fifty to sixty thousand members. Uh, locally in the state of New Jersey, we have about twelve hundred members. Uh, twelve hundred members made up of consulting engineers, laboratory professionals, licensed operators, financial analysts. It uh, we represent. Not only the publicly owned facilities in the state of New Jersey, but the also what we call the investor-owned. So we 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 represent the all the water purveyors that that exist in the state of New Jersey. Uh, one of the things that we uh, we had the honor to do, and I think uh, as a section, is we had the opportunity to work with the city of Newark on an educational event uh, where, when back in 2016, when this occurred, uh, they needed. Um, some background information and and they were able to tap into a lot of the water professionals that exist in the organization. And I thought it was a a, a benefit for the the school system. We also partnered with the NJDEP on going out and educating all the school systems in the state of New Jersey. Um, That was a a pretty good opportunity for us. Uh, One of the other things that, you know, uh, as the chair of the organization, I had the opportunity to work on a, a a white paper, a position paper, that was recently issued by the section on lead and drinking water on some recommendations that, that are going to be needed for the a revised lead and copper rule, which is being put out by the EPA. So that that. Position papers. If you want to come up to me after the session, I'd be glad to share that position paper. That was also in combination with a, the national organization, AWWA. They issued a pretty lengthy recommendation on what to do, how to revise the lead and copper rule to address all these all these issues. Uh, one of the things that I uh, and everyone's talking about this about partnerships. Well, who we are? We're the we're the water purveyors. Don't don't forget about where the water comes from. We are here available for you. The, uh, the, the people who treat the water, who design the treatment plants, um, we're, we're partners in this. And Rob mentioned during his talk that he reached out to a lot of water uh, professionals and that's what we're here for. We're here to provide that guidance, to provide that assistance on water quality because that's what we do on a, on a daily basis. So all the school systems should make themselves available to, uh, you know, to us and we are always available to them. We, we have a traveling show, we'll come out. One of the main functions of the AWWA is to educate people. Um, we're reaching out to school systems, health professionals, that's what we're here for. So take advantage of that. Thank you very much. Thank
6: you very much, Mike.
10: So, uh, as we move into the Q&A
6: section of the program, I'd like to encourage everybody to submit their written questions, Um, just hand them to one of our folks here or just bring them up to me and we'll get through as many of them as we possibly can in the time. I'd like to pick up on something that, um, that Chris Sturm said in her, very, in her opening address, uh, which is that the, the information that we have on the scale and the nature of the problem in New Jersey schools is incomplete. Uh, New Jersey Future, of course, did its, um, its survey on this and uh, published that in 2017. Um, and it's only a, a fraction or only a, a, a relatively small portion of, the, of the, uh, the state schools. We don't really know. Uh, what the um, what the scale of the problem is, uh, and so I'd like to ask the panelists um, uh, what they think could be done about this, so we can we can have a <coughs> excuse me a more accurate view of it. And I'd like to start with Senator Greenstein.
7: Um, I think it's incumbent on the Department of Education working with the uh, Department of Environmental Protection, but it's primarily the Department of Education that has to tighten up its, its rules, essentially. Um, they, uh, back in 2016, when we had the $10 million for testing, there was a push, you know, we, we, we budgeted that money. And the idea was that everybody is suppo- who is above a certain number of parts per billion, which would be many towns in the state, and many schools in the state, were supposed to report. But I think the reporting system was defective because Um, Some of the towns did the testing but never reported it to DOE. I'm not, you know, not even sure if they did public reporting. It seems like the whole reporting system was not tight enough, that it was not enforced enough to make sure that all of this information was put together properly. So I think the DOE has to see it as a priority and, uh, you know, and really put together a good system so we could for step one, we have to collect the data, and we don't even have that right now.
6: Indeed, thank you. Dan. Well,
8: d- to be fair to those systems that um, tested and perhaps uh, experienced a, uh, a, s- a system from the state that, that wasn't exactly customer friendly, you know, I think we could definitely have some sensitivity to that. But for those systems that just outright didn't follow the law, um, I think there should be a special set of circumstances that you apply to that. Um, I have uh, two young children in a public school district. Um, I know the value of getting uh, letters sent home to parents and getting people's attention. I think that superintendents of school districts that fail to test and follow the law should be um, uh, exposed for not following the law, and there should be notices sent home to all the, uh, the parents um, uh, very purposefully. Secondly, I think they should be ineligible for this funding in the first round. If you can't follow the minimums of the law, um, your eligibility for this funding should be limited. Uh, If you're not not willing to do the testing, um, set up the the, the plumbing profile, and and, uh, there's no way that this money will be spent wisely in that district. So I think they should be put on notice as quickly as possible. Before the money's out, give them an opportunity to respond. No one wants to be punitive uh, to to the children in that district. Um, But at the end of the day, um, if they can't follow the minimums of the law, they, they probably shouldn't be
9: eligible for the funds. Jerry? I agree with a lot of that in terms of reporting and, and sanctions for um, folks that don't report. But I don't know that we would agree to the last part because if the different districts or jurisdictions are not reporting, yeah, somebody's responsible for that and should be held accountable. But if that happens to be one of the schools with the worst water quality, the kids can't suffer for that. So you know, what we would recommend, look at the end of the day, what we've learned is what re- every school, every, almost every building virtually, needs a water quality management program in place. The feds just ordered this for all hospitals and nursing homes across the country because of the Legionella issue. It's very complicated in those, those facilities because of the, the, the piping, it's just very, very complicated. Um, but doing a water management program in a, in a school, much as Rob explained, You know, it's basically going in, scoping things out. You can identify things that need to be fixed right away and should be fixed right away um, before you even start testing it, and that should happen, but it happened hand in hand with comprehensive testing. I mean, this, uh, is Rob still here? Rob, if I could ask you, um, you said you had about 500 schools?
5: 527 campuses, yep.
9: 640 schools. Okay, and you, you tested, you ran tests through all those yet, or?
5: Yeah, we've done one complete round of testing across all buildings we either own or lease, regardless Just, of the know, age.
9: Lawyers cross-examination. Last <laughs> question. Um, you, if I heard you correctly, it was about five hundred thousand. You were able to do that. You budgeted two million, but you did it with five hundred thousand. We
5: budgeted five point seven for testing and mitigation. We ended up spending about one point nine on testing alone.
9: One point nine. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm misunderstanding. Still one point nine for five hundred schools. It gives you some idea that 100 million, you could get a good inventory of where New Jersey schools stand. And, and that was probably the first step. We also submit you need qualified contractors and technicians to do this, do it right. Testing is going to be no use if it's not done right. It needs to be, you know, and there's a new certification out through the ASSC, American uh, Society of Sanitation Engineers, that certifies both contractors and tradespeople, technicians, to do this. Um, we'd say first you would have. Um, a multidisciplinary team to help the DOE put a plan together and 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 get these issues on the table and outline how to do a good water uh, <clears throat> quality management program, and then move into testing and and take a major inventory and report mm-hmm. and then prioritize the schools that have to be addressed first.
6: Thank you, and, and I'd just like to supplement uh, this discussion about the improvement of information here just by uh, making, making reference to a question I just had from the audience. If, <coughs> excuse me, if only 16% of schools submitted their water testing data, what is the penalty for the, non, for the non-compliant schools? Uh, and as uh microphone goes down the line to Valerie here, I'm wondering if she has any views on that. <coughs>
4: um. Actually, yes, I do. Uh, our testing cost us about $1.4 million. Um, that original $10 million was uh, put in place. The DOE only um, uh, reimbursed us 400000 because that was for the actual sample itself and the testing. There's a lot of labor that goes into um, getting the building ready, shutting it down the night before, ensuring that no faucets or fixtures are leaking or dripping, making sure that you pull the samples in a coordinated effort from the top of the building all the way down. Oh yeah, I learned my testing protocols through the fire. Um, So doing all of that, and we were not reimbursed, and as I said before, that was not part of our budget. So we had to scrimp and pull from other places because Newark is a district that has been underfunded since 2007. We are currently underfunded by 146 million dollars a year with <coughs> the current state funding formula.
6: So, do, do you think that non that schools that that fail to provide the information should be penalized?
4: I think. <coughs> I will not say it that way. Um, I'm getting kinder and gentler as I get older and more mellow. So my team will tell you that. So from that perspective, I would say that there needs to be an incentivizing of schools. And I'm not saying pay them money to test, but make it more user-friendly to get your money. Make it more um, more inviting for schools to participate. Because this is one additional thing, that they're not getting money for, that they're not getting assistance with. It comes from existing staff. How you're going to be creative on a, a work group that is already significantly overloaded with work. There's always something to do in the building that the custodian and the plant manager have to do. Right. And in most times they're short staffed because operations get cuts before academics do in the school budget. And that's just the way of life. So help them be in a place that schools will be encouraged to do that. A lot of the smaller districts were turned off by some of the protocols that they needed to do. That whole thing, I can't remember the name with the pipes and all that stuff at the source, right? The piping profile or something like that, it's called, help me here, Mike. So, you know, those kinds of things. um, They're necessary, but how can we figure out to make it as easy as possible for districts to do that? Right. Because that's not their core business. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, one
10: thing I wanted to mention, and we talked about partnerships. And 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 Dan used to work uh, for the NJDEP. They have a great electronic database system. And if, in my opinion, if you want to put resources into to something to collect it, collect the information, collect the data, the DEP has an excellent um, system, electronic database system that they can. Uh, the, the DOE can. Kind of reach out and contact them and see how they did it because they they learned how to do it over years to get this electronic database in place so they can that data flow can, can be a lot quicker. And I think and I also agree with Dan about about the non-compliant schools. I think they, they should be penalized. The ones that did not comply with, with the rules and did not do the testing um, should be should be held accountable because uh, this is a very serious issue. Uh, lead and drinking water is serious issues. And the ones, the ones who did comply, and I really do have to hand it to the city of Newark, they, we were involved with that whole process and they did a wonderful job addressing the issues. They were, they were the first ones out there doing this without any knowledge of what to do and how to do it, but they did a great job and they, they should be um, afforded that you know, the opportunity for for additional funding because of that level of effort they did. So again, the DEP has electronic database system. It's in place, tap into them and see how they did it. That's the way to do it. So there's
6: another question here from the the audience. Uh, What do the panelists think the Department of Education, Department of Environmental Protection, should do to get stakeholder input into how to structure the $100 million program? We are not aware of any plans by state agencies to get such public input. Um, maybe we could start with you, Dan. Any thoughts on that? <coughs> uh,
8: stakeholder engagement is actually pretty easy. Um, you just have to have a, the, per, the purposeful intent to do it. Um, there are stakeholders, uh, not just utility contractors or building trades folks, uh, but school districts, uh, you know, you name, uh, if I went to do a list, I would leave somebody key out, so I'm not gonna do that. But you could brainstorm all the different types of groups and have uh, meetings face to face, small rooms. Uh, You could also invite um, uh, the uh, the folks to submit written comments and written design. Uh, If we would love to participate in a process like that, we would love to help design a process like that. The DEP does it uh, often on their rulemaking before rules go into the register. They're they're developing. Uh, stakeholder engagement uh, protocols to make sure that they hear stakeholder input before they roll out a rule. Um, if UTCA was offered the ability to do that, we would talk about things that the, the DOE may not understand, like uh, how complicated it is for contractors when there's not a standardized bid spec. Um, they would hear from contractors about um, you know bidding processes and how to make this most most efficient. They would you would open up your mind before you put out uh, a solicitation for a program. You would listen to that first and you would get input from contractors which, which, which were honestly not um, you know, engaged directly with the DOE at all. So um, I think it would be easy, I think they should do it and uh, you've got people like me and others that would be glad to help them design it out and, uh, and the DEP I think is really good at stakeholdering um, and, uh, and they, so their sister agencies could help them out as well.
6: Anybody, anything to add on that?
9: Um, we had mentioned before about a task force. I think what Dan said makes a lot of sense for broad public input. But um, you know, New York has now has a, a water quality task force because all the problems they're facing in schools and public housing and elsewhere, and um, New Jersey's looking at that too. This task force would have to obviously be for the schools and to get the expertise, cross-disciplinary expertise at a high level. You know, some of the best advice that they could get to them for things like designing the plan about going out after this, and how to figure out which schools to go to first, what, how to do the bidding on this. You want be able to make sure you have very qualified contractors, and other uh, procurement laws can vary, and there are certain things you can do to make sure you get the best qualified contractors, what you want for something like this. So I, I, we think a task force would be very helpful with key you know, groups represented to to give them suggestions and recommendations on how best along with the other government agencies there, you know, health and environment.
6: Here's another question from the audience, um, and I, uh, if a water sample t- tests less than 15 parts per billion, how do you answer the question, quote, is this water safe to drink? And I, I would like to ask you to start on that, Valerie, since you've been on the, the sharp end of this.
4: That's a hard question, but a good one. Um, I, thought, I thought it was a good question. Um, As we say, no level of lead is acceptable, and the challenge through engagement with your public, and there's a lot of that that has to be done by districts with this problem, um, you, you have to first educate your public. Because most people hear lead and they're like, oh my God, my child is is gonna be subjected to this and I don't care what you tell me, I don't trust you, you're not telling the truth because you don't want to tell the truth. And that's not the case. So transparency, someone said transparency earlier today. um, If you educate your public first and then share the information with them, you have a better opportunity and a better a chance of getting them to believe and to trust you. You have to build trust. We put all our results out on our website. You know, Every time we did a test, and when we did the retest, we put them out there, and we explained how do you read the lab report. We put the lab report out in its raw form, and then we interpreted it and did a summary for them. So all, and put it where, click, click, two clicks, and they get to it. Right? So, and you keep it updated and you keep pushing them to that location so that they become um, used to it. And they understand that's where the most current data is going to be. And then you begin to talk about the technical pieces about the 15 parts per billion. You talk about the fact that New York's had a lead testing program. You know, people would come to public meetings and they'd be like, yeah, 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 you know, all this stuff. And you hear them saying, you know, I remember going to the trailer in 1970 to be tested for lead. Well, why aren't you thinking about that now? Because that's your experience. You know that it's been testing all this time. You know, so you educate and then you inform.
6: Thank you. Senator Greenstein wants to say something on this.
7: Thanks. Um, You know, when it comes to something like the 15 parts per billion, That isn't uniformly the standard. It happens to be a standard for what we're looking at here. But I think I saw that certain federal agencies have a standard of five parts per billion. So I think it really comes down to science. And when you're communicating with the public, they really don't want you to try to, you know, pull the wool over their eyes. They want to get the truth. And I think the important information to give them in the case of this as to whether the water is safe is to give them good scientific information. If there's a disagreement among scientists, say to them, some t- scientists think this is safe, others think this, but give them real um, detailed information and then they can begin to get their own ideas as will the school system about well, what's safe and what so, is safe. So is this
6: a job for the Drinking Water Quality Institute, do you think? Uh, to to, to think establish the science
7: uh, as I the, think you so. know, the,
6: the central arbiter of uh, water quality in the state? Excuse I me. think certainly <coughs> it might be.
7: Mm. Yes, I think it would be. Okay. Um, <clears throat>
6: No, no. Go ahead. Do we have a definitive answer on under 15
8: parts per billion? The the public health answer is that there's no safe level of lead in uh, either in dust or drinking water or any environmental condition you can imagine.
9: Um, there's a federal standard. Is is the EPA federal standard is 15 parts per billion? And basically, you won't say see anywhere where it says. You know, if you're under that, you'll be safe and everything's good. It's just their standard and they, they're pretty, you know, uh, coy about how they word it. But that's the federal standard and the understanding is, which I think is generally correct. If it's under that, you're going to be okay and you're not going to see problems. In fact, even if it's over it, you're not going to see po- blood poisoning in children, you know, because it's set pretty conservatively. So you have to understand if it's somewhat over, it doesn't mean the sky is falling. It means you have to address it and, and fix it and get below. But 15 is the, stand, is, is the uniform federal standard put out by the EPA for most water systems. It doesn't necessarily apply to individual wells and stuff and some schools are on that.
4: I, I just want to add to that before Mike speaks in. One of the challenges we had in talking with the EPA was what you, what you do to water and can you bring it to a level that the water even though it's clean and safe is flat, right? Because you've taken out some of the things that you need to leave in in order for water to be of a good quality and to be safe. So you have to be sort of balanced between that. So we use the EPA standards. I think at the state at the time, were 10 parts per billion, if I'm not mistaken. So we use that as our category and said, it's at 15, but we're doing 10. I'll do that.
2: And it's really, there's a big difference. The maximum contaminant level standard is different. Okay, An action level means that the, that the water utility has to take action with corrosion control or other measures to reduce lead, you know, that's coming out of the path. It's actually not a standard. Yeah, it's so, not okay, a... That it's really
6: Thanks, Amy. Yeah, the
10: 15 parts per billion is an action level. Like she explains, it's for it's a guidance for water systems to take action if 90. That's what we call the 90th percentile. So if a a system collects 100 samples and and the 90th samples above 15 parts per billion, there is a possibility that some samples could be over that 15 parts per billion. But but an action, some kind of action level has to be taken. So that's a that's that's specific to a first draw lead. A sample that, that's sit, sitting in the pipes for at least six hours. The, the NJDEP also has a standard, a what we call a flush standard, when you take a sample for a flush water of five parts per billion. So so those and the EPA is looking at um, health, you know, the health related issues with those with those uh, those numbers. And when they revise the lead and copper rule, they're going to come out with more information concerning that. So, thank you. Uh,
6: so, um, and th- there's one I've got. Uh, I'm afraid we're not going to have time to get through all of these questions, but here's a very detailed question that maybe you can help us with, Mike, to begin with. And that is, regarding schools that get their water from well water, can lead come from natural sources within the ground or only through old, old infrastructure?
10: No. The, uh, in groundwater sources, lead is not naturally occurring element. Uh, it's, it's very extremely rarely found in, in, in groundwaters. Now, if, if groundwater has a low pH condition, because it's all about water chemistry, if that low pH... Can, can essentially leach the lead out of, out of pipes. So any kind of ground, most groundwaters, uh, groundwaters have relatively low pH. So if you have that low pH there, there's a potential to leach lead but it, lead is not naturally found in groundwaters. Okay. Thank you. I, I want to get to another uh, kind of
6: overarching question here. I suspect that nobody's actually going to be able to answer it, but, uh, but I will ask it anyway, <laughs> which is uh, when will the rules slash procedures for the distribution of the funding be available? And I'd like to start with the senator here um, to see what she uh, she has to say about that. <clears throat> no, no, no pressure here.
7: <clears throat> well, my honest answer is I have no idea. <laughs> I, over the last uh, days, I, I tried to see what I could find out. And uh, nobody seemed to have the information. In fairness, yesterday, for whatever reason, and that's when I was doing a lot of my phone calling, it seemed like the telephones for the Department of Education were down, probably because of the wind. You could not reach anybody in that department. Um, However, there were many people I spoke with who had spoken with DOE recently, and the impression I get is that they still... Um, they probably still haven't begun the bonding process or making any decisions on the standards for the $100 million. It would have helped if I'd gotten to talk with one of them, but um, the information we have is... Uh, just data from last year and no real information on what they plan to do. Well, uh, we, could, uh, we could talk all morning on this and a
6: hundred other subjects, but unfortunately we've run out of time and I'd like to thank you all the panelists very much for their time. <clears throat> and I'd like to thank you all in the audience for, uh, for coming and, uh, and, and to listen and to uh, contribute your questions. So uh, thank you all very much. Oh, and uh, one final thing. There were some questions that were specifically for Rob, and I imagine he's, he's right here. So whoever wrote those, please feel free to, uh, to go chat with him afterwards. Thank you very much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight roundtable. If you have comments or suggestions, you can send them to info at njspotlight.com. We produce these programs in the studios of State Broadcast News in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for joining us, and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insights for New Jersey.